The Gospel lesson today comes from the book of John, the 17th chapter, beginning at verse 20. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just a month ago, your newly ordained leaders, elders, and deacons answered a series of questions, ordination vows, we call them. I counted it up. I've answered them five times, twice as an elder, three times as a minister. For a while, my favorite vow was this one. Do you promise to serve the people with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love? I love to think about those qualities and the extent to which all of us, all of us have been gifted them by God's spirit, energy, intelligence, imagination, love. More recently, I have been kind of captured by this vow. Will you be a friend among your colleagues in ministry? Now, whatever your work, we all need that, right? Friends and colleagues. And I can tell you we need it in the church in important ways as we live into all of these changes we are facing. But by now, perhaps you know my favorite ordination vow. Or if it's not my favorite, at least it's the one that has become most compelling to me the most central in my own ministry. Do you promise to further the peace, unity, and purity of the church? Do you promise to further the peace, unity, and purity of the church? I've said I do five times to that question. I've taught it to students, I've asked it of church leaders nearly 30 times. Each word, peace, unity, purity, is a challenge on its own and taken together can almost feel like an unsolvable puzzle. And yet I and many of you have said yes to that question. And even if we haven't, We have this clear mandate from Jesus as he prays to God in the lesson from John's Gospel that Diana just read. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me 
that they may become completely one. Completely one. How can that be? Now, as we've heard already, our Congregational Fellowship Committee will offer us delicious hot dogs next Sunday at the big lunch. And every year, the committee discusses whether to serve red hots or white hots, how many veggie dogs to prepare. And I keep thinking to myself, if that's a discussion, how can we be completely one on even larger matters than red or white hots? How can we experience peace, unity, purity, when we are debating right now divisive political matters with religious patina to them? Choice, or immigration, or the Middle East, or gun violence, or climate change. You might have noticed that my favorite ordination vow asks us to further peace, unity, and purity, not achieve it even, but further it, advance it just a little. Still, how do we do that? How do we do that in the face of deep theological division and disagreement? Perhaps you read an interchange in the Times just before Easter with columnist Nicholas Kristof and theologian and seminary president Serene Jones. The gist of the interview, and and let me stipulate that this is a very condensed summary, the gist of it is is that Jones stated that one need not believe in things like the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection of Jesus or the afterlife to be a Christian. And in all the comments that followed, and you can just imagine them, many embraced what she said as representing their own perspective. Many did not. So what does unity look like? Theologian Molly Marshall pinpoints the challenge. Christians, sadly, she says, are known more for sectarian divides than for unity in the body of Christ. That is why there are so many ecclesial families, independent churches, fractured relationships scattered across the globe. Issues that should not threaten unity today are given preeminence. And the strain of differences opens seemingly insurmountable crevices. I grieve, Marshall writes, how we have countermanded Jesus' prayer that they might be one. Now, Marshall acknowledges that there is some difference based on geography and ethnicity and language, but it's more than that. Some of the divides are because humans tend to claim more certainty than is possible when dealing with holy matters. And so she asks a question, a hard question. Will we transcend our sectarian divides or continue to dismember the body of Christ? Will we? And it's not just religion in the church, we know that. A generation after Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone and Robert Bella's emphasis on individualism as a rapidly growing American phenomenon, how do we further unity when it's hard even to know what community is? Alan Brame writes that we barely know the people we live around. Rather than the community of the past, we tend to see ourselves as individuals, individuals. 
living as individuals, concerned with our individual welfare. As a result, he says, we isolate ourselves, immersed in the virtual reality of television, internet, and video games, not much of a substitute for real flesh and blood relationships. So with all of that, it's back to Marshall's question. Will we transcend our divides? I don't know. I hope so. I pray so. Not only for the sake of the church's ministry, but for its capacity to minister in such a fractured world. And it's true, we might never fully transcend our divides. But might we further unity just a little bit? And if we do, we will do so by God's grace and the power of the risen and ascended Christ. And if we make such progress, we will do so by remembering at least this little handful of things. We will remember that unity is not uniformity. Lucy Lynn Hogan asks of Jesus' unity prayer, does that mean we have to get along all the time? Does it mean we have to agree all the time? No, she says. We are one in Christ whether we agree with each other or not. We are one in Christ whether we like one another or not. If you've been part of a family, a member of a church or a community, you know that within that love there can be disagreements and squabbling. We are human. But the mystery, she says, of the incarnation is that God desired unity with us so much God became one of us. It is with God's help that we can live into that oneness. William Loder writes that the unity is not any unity. It is not a contrived peace or collaboration. He says, in fact, it's striking that the gospel depicts considerable diversity in responses to Jesus. That is to say, oneness in sharing God's life as love is a broad and inclusive platform upon which many can stand and which can tolerate great diversity. We will also remember that unity is more than intellectual agreement. It is tangible and relational. Deborah Dean Murphy writes that the unity of the church does not subsist invisibly through faith or by assent to propositions, but is to be visible and material. Unity is shared witness, she says, not intellectual agreement. A week ago, we housed homeless neighbors with our Jewish friends. We have built houses with our Mormon friends. We work for educational equity with Unitarians and Episcopalians and Roman Catholics and even, every once in a while, other Presbyterians. Witness as tangible unity. Statements do matter. Yet the world will know Jesus more deeply as it sees the acts of those who love him.
And we will remember that unity is a gift from God. Alan Brame writes that what creates a real and lasting unity in the church is the love of God among us. It is the love that unites Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that brings unity to the church. Given the wide variety of personalities, cultures, worldviews, and expectations among those of us who actually make up the church, Brame says, it seems reasonable that the love of God is the only thing that can possibly unite us. Those are the things we might remember. And when we do, it will look like many things. It will look like mission and outreach and that long list of names in the bulletin this morning. Tangible witness that reaches across boundaries to meet very real human need. It will look like people of good faith and goodwill wrestling honestly with difference, theological and cultural and political difference, wrestling humbly and gently. And it will look like what we do in a few moments around this very table. Deborah Dean Murphy writes that it is communion that constitutes a unifying witness in the world. In this act, the church is united across time and distinctions between the global and the local are collapsed. The church is, she says, there and then, here and now, the visible body of its Lord. And this visible body does not express or evince the church's unity. It is the church's unity. Let's remember that even this morning in a very particular way as we share a morsel of bread and a sip from a cup. Well, that would have been enough of a conclusion But I would like to share one thing more with your indulgence. Rachel Held Evans was an evangelical writer who both embraced her tradition and wrestled with it. She died unexpectedly at age 37, just a few weeks ago. I didn't read Rachel Held Evans very much. I knew of her work, I was aware of it and grateful for it, and many friends and colleagues have been deeply touched, both by her life and now by her death. Her memorial service was held yesterday, and Lutheran minister Nadia Bowles Weber offered this benediction, which seems to speak clearly and strongly to our year of stories and what it might mean to be united in the body of Christ. Blessed are the agnostics, blessed are they who doubt. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are the preschoolers who cut in line at communion. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are those whom no one else notices. The kids who sit alone at middle school lunch tables, the the laundry guys at the hospital, the sex workers and the night shift street sweepers, the closeted, the teens who have to figure out ways to hide the new cuts on their arms. 
Blessed are the meek. You are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are they who have loved enough to know what loss feels like. Blessed are the mothers of the miscarried. Blessed are they who can't fall apart because they have to keep it together for everyone else. Blessed are those who still aren't over it yet. Blessed are those who mourn you are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. And then Bowles Weber concludes, I imagine Jesus standing here blessing us because that is our Lord's nature. This Jesus cried at his friend's tomb, turned the other cheek, and forgave those who hung him on a cross. He was God's beatitude, God's blessing to the weak in a world that admires only the strong. Jesus invites us into a story bigger than ourselves and our imaginations. Yet we all get to tell that story with the scandalous particularity of this moment. In this place, we are storytelling creatures because we are fashioned in the image of a storytelling God. May we never neglect that gift. May we never lose our love for telling the story. And then she says, Amen. And we do the same. Amen.